episode 14 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. We are back. We have a special edition of the podcast, a shorter 30 to 40 minute episode today, just covering news topics. This is going to be the format for the next couple of episodes over uh, summer here. Uh, jumping right in, I will go first with the news story I wanted to discuss on the pod. Uh, it was just announced earlier this week that uh, Blackstone is selling $3.1 billion worth of industrial real estate to Prologis. Prologis is, of course, the largest owner of industrial real estate in the world. Uh, this will make them the largest owner of industrial real estate in the U.S., uh, which until the sale, uh, when the sale goes through, uh, Blackstone will be forfeiting that title to Prologis. Uh, of course, Link Logistics came out of nowhere. Uh, you know, in 2019, and almost overnight, it seems like became the largest owner of industrial real estate in the country. Uh, and now they are exiting uh, $3.1 billion worth of real estate. Uh, that encompasses about 14 million square feet across 70 properties across uh, dozens of markets spanning from California through the South, through New York, New Jersey. Really big, big news. It's the largest industrial sale uh, of the year. Uh, and I think of note and worthy of discussion. So a couple things that I wanted to highlight first is um, I don't think that this is necessarily a um, you know like phenomenon of Blackstone saying, hey, look, we want to exit uh, or pare down our investment into industrial real estate. This um, this 3.1 billion dollars worth of property sits in a opportunistic real estate fund that has to return capital to their investors, whereas Prologis is a publicly traded REIT, they're permanent capital. It's why you don't see the same amount of sales happening from publicly traded REITs versus uh, private equity firms that have to return capital to their investors. It's also important to remember that even though this was a, um, or is a very large sale, uh, this uh, pales in comparison to Prologis's $23 billion acquisition of Duke Realty that happened last year. Um, something that, that is interesting to think about is what happens as there's this um, you know, continued uh, consolidation of ownership in industrial real estate. I mean, you look at the percentage of the market that Prologis owns uh, in the U.S. Uh, and how much Link owns in the U.S. even you know, with this exit. Um, and what, what happens moving forward, right? Are they able to acquire more and more property? They have access to the cheapest capital of anyone in industrial real estate, no question. Um, and they're very good operators. So it will be interesting to see if we continue to uh, see these types of acquisitions by Prologis, as well as other large industrial landlords. I'm curious what you all think. You know, this is at least rational. I think we're going to talk about some other um, trades that I really have trouble wrapping my brain around. Uh, but this is 221 bucks a foot in a core asset class. Um, it's interesting to hear you describe the motivations of Blackstone as a seller in their profile of their, their ownership structure. That was my first question is, isn't it interesting that in this market, you've got smart people on both sides, um, one that decides it's time to sell, one decides it's time to buy and trying to dig into what their motivations might be. Um, but I think you nailed it. Thanks, John. One other thing that I find really fascinating is just thinking about the risk profile of investing in real estate in different ownership setups. If you invest, and, and again, like we've talked about this on prior pods, but Blackstone is obviously a phenomenal investor, right? So it's not suggesting that um, their fund structure is suboptimal or something, right? 
But if you invest into a private equity firm or a private equity fund owning real estate and there is uh, the funds drawing down or funds drawing to a close, they have to sell regardless of what the market conditions are. These private equity uh, limited partner agreements generally only allow them to extend the fund for so long of a period. Usually uh, there's you know two or three one-year extensions that are available um, that the fund can make at its election. So if you find yourself in a bad part of the cycle, you could be really damaged. Even if you wanted to, to keep your money in there, you can't. The fund's going to wind down. Then there are these um, publicly, then there are these these REITs um, that are structured a little bit different. Like if you look at how BREIT is structured, right? It's a like quasi public REIT, um, but it's like a private REIT. So in order to buy into it, it's a little bit different than, you know, buying Prologis, which you can do through, you know, your brokerage account or something. And you think about the impact of um, Prologis's share price going down, right? They still own all of that real estate. It just you're able to buy a share of that real estate at a lower price because that real estate is worth less. Whereas if you're an investor in BREIT and all of a sudden um, people start redeeming their capital over and over and over, BREIT actually has to sell real estate in order to cover those redemptions. So in periods like this where a lot of investors are, are nervous and asking for their money back, um, BREIT's returning that capital and they have to sell, whereas Prologis is in a position where if you're a very long-term holder, yeah, the, the stock price may go down. And of course, like that may cause some troubles in the short term. But in the long term, Prologis is not going to be a forced seller of real estate. And that puts you in a position as an investor of, uh, you know, in like Prologis or something or a company like that, where I think that your equity is, is much safer because you don't have these um, like crowd, you know, fleeing the theater type of mechanics where you may want to stay, but everyone else is leaving and that can really damage you. Uh, and of course, there's been all types of examples of uh, hedge funds getting into illiquid positions and then having, uh, you know, runs on their hedge fund and the, um, you know, general partner having a ton of their own capital in there and getting blown up even though they have a trade that would have made a ton of sense, but people don't have the patience to see it through. Um, so anyways, just I think that's an interesting piece of note when you compare the ownership structures of a Prologis versus um, a fund-type structured owner. By the way, Tucker, you mentioned their purchase of Duke Realty. Uh, super interesting to compare them on a comp basis. I mentioned that the, the current uh, Blackstone transaction comes out to uh, $221 a square foot and some change. The Duke Realty transaction, you, you sort of have to put the pieces together. But if you combine the existing buildings with the development pipeline, it comes to about 149 million square feet. Um, and that 23 billion across 149 million square feet is 154 bucks a foot compared to the 221 that they're paying now. Um, and the Duke Realty had 17 million square feet of developable land. Um, so it's even lower if you try and figure out what that value was and uh, they get they paid even less for the uh, the buildings themselves that's a that's a pretty low comp 154 that was a keen acquisition yeah and that also was at a time where interest rates were very different you know prologis a year ago or you know in early 2022 was at an all-time high around 170 dollars a share within a couple dollars of that and now i believe they're trading more like 115 dollars a share so it just goes to show you how much less expensive the uh, Duke acquisition was relative to um, the acquisition of some of these Blackstone assets. That said, in order to you know really point and say, hey, this was a 
better buy versus a worse buy, I think we need to go a little bit deeper, understand at a property level. You know, for example, it seems like a lot of the Blackstone properties, and this is consistent with Blackstone strategy generally, uh, are very urban, right? Like Los Angeles, Atlanta, New Jersey, New York, areas that generally command much higher rents. So hard to compare, but um, I, I agree. I mean, generally, if you can have a lower basis in you know, industrial property, then that's, that's better. So yeah, good point, John. I also have a question. I, you know, there's big movements in the market right now, and I think that, that explains a lot of the motivation. But I wonder, is, is uh, depreciation a reason that people sell, right? Cost seg and accelerated depreciation, and you, you, you use up all that good tax write-off. Isn't that a reason some folks decide they've held an asset long enough? Yeah, of, of course. I, I think it uh, impacts publicly traded REITs a lot differently than individual investors uh, and you know funds that are passing on depreciation of their LPs. Uh, very, very different way of looking at it. But uh, yeah, I mean, Blackstone certainly is not putting themselves in a position generally where they're owning property for, you know, multi-decade periods where they're, you know, using up all their depreciation. But yeah, I think that that's a, a common reason for people that own properties for, you know, whereabouts 30 years to decide to, you know, get into another asset. Yeah, and I'll just add that <clears throat> right now, given the illiquidity in the markets, it, I'm not surprised that a Prologis is stepping up and buying because, you know, they, they've got access to capital that others don't. This is their core investment strategy. Um, and they're, you know, risk takers. They like to corner a market. I remember going way back, and, and someone correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but in 2008, in the market, Prologis was was a little risky. Like their stock had dropped drastically. They were, um, I want to say it was like 15, 12, 10, 15, 20 dollars a foot. They were people were worried about what's going to happen to them. Um, and then they've they've slowly rebound over a long period of time. But now they're the dominant force in the market. And but the you know they they've doubled down. The big get bigger. Their access to cash is better than their peers. So keep going. Why not? That's the way I look at it. Yeah. One other point to make is that regardless of how industrial real estate performs over the next couple of years, it's important to remember that Prologis' strategy is to buy industrial real estate at the best possible terms and drive the most value that they can in this asset class. So when you're thinking about a portfolio allocation as an institutional investor, even if industrial real estate's not going to do great necessarily, people are going to want exposure to that asset class and they're going to be measuring Prologis' performance, not against the S&P 500 or against a biotech index or something, but they're going to be measuring it against returns generated by other people with a consistent strategy investing in industrial real estate. So, um, you know, these asset classes and strategies of these different funds are all different. And it's important to keep in mind that they should be compared, um, you know, based off of strategy and what their focus is. Yeah. And why does this stuff matter to our listeners and our clients other than just being interested in <clears throat> the consolidation in the landlord business? You know, to me, it's not good. I think having having competition, having a um, a mix of large REITs and, and the Blackstones of the world and having local owners, especially in industrial, is is healthier in a local market than one dominated by larger REITs in these investment companies. Um, you usually see pretty um, uh, 
wide pricing variables in the, the, the wider the market is in terms of the number of owners, the wider the range is in terms of pricing, right? So it's not a great thing for our clients, but um, they're great operators. The marketplace has historically been one that um, has challenged with uh, quality assets and scale and scalability. So having um, yeah, this being not that large of an acquisition, I don't think it's really going to impact our clients very much at all. I uh, have one other thing I want to add before we close on this topic and move to the next one. Uh, I know that Owen feels very similarly to how I feel about this. So I'm going to ask him and let him say it. Owen, what would you tell a client that has a lease expiration up in 12 months that was in a Blackstone-owned building and now Prologis owns their building? Yeah, so um, historically for those listeners that aren't experienced working with Blackstone, they uh, historically would not engage with a tenant until the lease was six months or less from expiring, uh, which has been a constant source of frustration for our clients. Um, and it all makes sense now as we've been listening to the three of you talk about this acquisition. I'm just going back through all the transactions I worked on over the past three years with Link Logistics, which is the Blackstone entity that owned all this real estate. Um, nobody was more aggressive at pushing rents um, to the point where, in some cases, their mindset was, I know it's over market. If you don't like it, then you're welcome to go somewhere else. Um, and so anyway, it's it all makes sense. They were driving towards an exit. We all knew that, but I don't think any of us saw it coming just exactly when it did, but it was inevitable um, given that they had to return their um, investors' returns. But anyway, to your, to your answer, um, this is an opportunity potentially, the window might be open where we might be able to engage um, the client now, um, you know, the client being, or not the client, the, the landlord prologis uh, in a re re renewal situation if your lease expires in the next 12 months. But I would encourage um, anyone whose lease expires in, let's say, 12 months that's in a Blackstone vis-a-vis -vis now prologis building to start thinking ahead uh, and planning for uh, what has been the inevitable, which is that you're just going to get an answer of let's talk to you in six months. Um, so that behooves you to kind of make sure that you're evaluating options in the market, seeing what else is out there and planning for the future, because six months doesn't give you much time to move. Um, granted, moving an industrial facility is a little bit easier than moving office space. Um, but regardless, there's still changes and uh, mining for those opportunities ahead of time. So you know what to expect going in is really important. But I'm wondering, um, I think what we're all hoping to see is that maybe Prologis will engage a little bit sooner and be, um, be less aggressive, if you will than Link has been, uh, who's been historically very challenging to work with. Yeah, great news if Prologis is now your landlord instead of Blackstone if you have a lease expiration coming up because Prologis is generally a lot less aggressive on how they price their buildings. Blackstone is always in every market where they own real estate saying, we are going to lead the market up, we're going to be the most expensive buildings in town, and Prologis, I find, is much more consistent with the market. It's not that they're undercharging, it's just that they're charging market. And Link is aggressively trying to create a new market. And until you create that new market, you're above market. Um, and it's challenging in some of these markets with single, low single digit percent vacancy. And you know, I guess you could say, well, why aren't these other landlords trying to charge these rents if Blackstone's able to get it? But I think it's uh it oftentimes creates a little bit of anger and frustration with tenants and prologis i think is um you know maybe more long-term focused than link is and 
their strategy is that they're going to be the largest owner of industrial real estate 100 years from now. Uh, and you know, you look at how Link uh, or Blackstone pared down its office portfolio so quickly, you know, uh, over the last decade, right, going from a meaningful percent of its portfolio to two percent. Could that be their strategy with industrial if their thesis on the asset type changes? It could be. There's no way that Prologis is going to change their thesis, though. Their identity is owning industrial real estate. But I would, uh, yeah, I agree. And one thing to keep in mind, too, is that if you're a tenant that had to sign one of these really aggressive leases with Link, vis-a-vis Blackstone, um, over the past three years where rents were exceeding historic highs, um, I would suggest that this might be an opportunity, you know, when your lease comes up to, to realize some savings, because keep in mind, like the link hit a grand slam. I mean, not only did they push rents, but they leased industrial real estate, arguably one of the hottest industrial real estate markets we've seen in the past 25 years. So historic rents. And if Blackstone's thesis happens to be that this asset class is kind of oversubscribed and um, over-invested in, and we're going to see some sort of correction, there might be hope <laughs> for those that had to sign some of these really aggressive leases um, when your lease rolls. It's pretty funny. We're trying to do this quick hits news stories, and we just, I think all of us like to talk, but this is super interesting. I think it's worth the time. We may not get to all of our articles. And I actually have one more thing to say about this uh, um, Blackstone Prologis transaction. It's what Brian alluded to, and I think it's worth a quick conversation. And the question is, can can these folks play monopoly in the real, real world? Uh, do they acquire monopolistic pricing power? Um, can that happen? And if so, is there suddenly some focus on antitrust and, and limiting um, current acquisitions, future acquisitions? And my, my prediction would be that there will be markets where, in fact, Prologis has an outsized influence over the submarket rents. Um, but across the broad context of industrial real estate in the country, I think it's hard to play monopoly and actually generate monopolistic pricing power. What do you all think? Yeah, the industrial real estate market is just so enormous that no one is even close. I mean, no, nobody's even like double digit percentage of the way there. I mean, people are maybe low single digit percent of the way there to be able to start having monopolistic pricing. I mean, to put it in perspective, Prologis owns about 1.2 billion square feet of industrial real estate globally and about a billion square feet of industrial real estate in the US. There's the Dallas, like greater Dallas, Fort Worth industrial real estate market is just less than a billion square feet. All of Los Angeles and Orange County, just less than a billion square feet of industrial real estate. So, you know, think about, and granted, like obviously they have a distributed strategy where they don't own all their real estate in one market. But just to think about it, think about what Dallas and Fort Worth industrial real estate market represents as a percentage of the entire industrial real estate market in the country, right? That's one city and one state. Granted, it is a very large market, but we're dealing with a very small segment of the overall industrial market that anyone owns. Uh, and just given the cost to continue to acquire these buildings, I mean, will Prologis own 2 billion square feet of real estate a decade or two decades from now? Maybe, but still that will be a very small segment of the market. And at the same time, the industrial real estate market is getting larger and larger every year too. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I don't disagree with any of that factual information. Um, however, real estate is local and 
all of us have gone into a market and gotten proposals and you get, you know, five proposals and four of them have CB representing the landlord. How do we create um, more leverage and more, uh, you know, information sharing than one one team or one landlord in in Boston? Boston Properties owns, I think, 13 million square feet in the back bay. It, it was the number that came to my mind. But they own some of the, if not the nicest product in the back bay. And they, in certain um, market cycles, they control pricing, right? They do. And that's, and that, you know, at, at the, they don't own anywhere near, they probably own 1% of the office market. They're the largest landlord, but, you know, they don't own, um, they don't own a significant number when you look at it uh, in totality. But in markets, landlords, as they get bigger, can start to control pricing. And <clears throat> I'd say that I'd be more concerned on a micro basis of that than macro basis. Okay. That's a lot of time spent talking about this one deal. Uh, let's move on to the next topic. Oh, and I know that you're uh, eager to talk about an interesting project and development going on in New York. Yeah. So, you know, we're all, for those interested in office space and return to office and all that kind of stuff, um, I thought this was interesting, and it's a huge bet on the future. And so what it is, is New York's second largest landlord in terms of total square footage owned, operated, is a company called Vornado. And they own a huge project uh, at Penn Station in New York City. For those that have been in New York, Penn Station is one of the biggest transit hubs in the city, probably in the country. Um, they're making a $1 billion bet that more commuters... Um, will return to the office if the commute itself is easy um, and doesn't take forever to get to the work to work. So um, this is a nine million square foot project. Keep in mind, which is an enormous amount of real estate, and it's not just office space; it's mixed use. Um, but they're overhauling two of its office buildings at the transit hub and spending one point two million dollars, one point two billion dollars. Um, and their thesis is that if they can create an environment where coming in from Connecticut, New Jersey, elsewhere, um, is easy and you can drop off right at your office and head upstairs to work, you'll have much more success, um, getting your people back than if they have to take the train into Penn station and then transfer onto another subway, you know, and all of a sudden their commute's an hour and a half or plus. And so it's interesting to see, I'll be interested to see how this kind of plays out, um, they already have success with one of their buildings where they've leased over 700,000 square feet, where they did a $450 million renovation. And they were able to push rents to $100 a square foot from 60. So huge increase. Now, whether or not that plays out again, um, now that the pandemic's behind us remains to be seen. But they've got a 1.8 million square foot building called Pen One that they're trying to lease, um, that they've already leased some space to Madison Square Garden's corporate headquarters but it's by no means enough to be considered the anchor tenant. And so in addition, if you read the article, it's in the Wall Street Journal, you can't miss it. Um, they're activating all the ground plane. So think it's not just, hey, build a building where there's a transit center. It's built a building where we've got um, bars, restaurants. Um, they've got a big lounge that tenants can use where there's live TV during the day of sports games. It could be the Masters, it could be the Tour de France. It's, it's like hyper activation of all the ground plane and common areas for those office tenants that they believe will 
make this a place where beyond the office, it's one of the coolest places in New York, not to mention you just go downstairs again on your train and go home. So um, I'm just curious to see how this plays out because they claim that one of the number one complaints about having to return to the office is indeed the commute. And so if they can solve for the commute, can they not only um, achieve occupancy, but also push rents like they've been able to do? Curious to hear what your thoughts are. I mean, I think that's um, everybody is coming back with the conclusion that the commute is the number one uh, complaint. And that the interesting part about that would be that it's not it doesn't matter if your commute is across the street or on trains, but there's like a, a exponential effect as it gets worse. Right. But the whole one, what did he call it? The one seat commute. So you get on the train, you come in there and you go up to your office. I think it's brilliant. The activation. I sat with a um, with a potential a landlord on a potential project recently who was trying to introduce it. And they they literally introduced this new building with the same, you know, the building amenities are owned by the building, controlled by the building. There's nothing interesting about it. They've got access is still is there's no place for Uber pickups. It's just, it's like they built the building in 1999. It's I'm like, I'm sitting there. I'm like, yeah, this is a great project. Yeah, this is great. It's like, where have you guys been? You need to start activating your buildings and getting people back. But certain developers aren't doing it. I mean, Stephen Roth's great. He, in the same conversation he had about, about introducing a brand new office building, he said that Fridays in the office are dead forever. <laughs> So, you know, the guy's a the guy's he's smart. He's he, he accepts, I think, the new reality around return to work. And he and he's ahead of many other developers in understanding what's going to help people come back to work. Less commute and more activation. It's pretty simple. For those that are not commercial real estate brokers like ourselves who understand who's in all these buildings downtown, right? When you look at this, when we look at the skyline, we can look at a building, we know who's there, right? Who are the companies that are in that building, but the general public can't. And so think about this is that if you tell someone where you work, okay, and you don't work in like, say the most iconic building in the city, the way you're going to describe it by and large is based on the ground floor. And what I mean is like, if your building is home to a a well-known restaurant, you might be like, oh, I'm in the XYZ restaurant building, right? Or if your building has an Equinox Fitness, you would be like, yeah, I'm in the building Equinox is in. Because the general public identifies a building with their arrival, who's on that ground floor. And it's a lesson to be learned for those landlords who have kind of just forgotten about the importance of retail. And by and large, their buildings are kind of dead right now. You know, I will... I'll just call this out. Like our office in Seattle is in the nicest building in the city. I will, I, I can back that up with a ton of facts. Um, and they also achieve the highest rents in the city. Okay. Um, however, the retail in our building is non-existent during the pandemic. We lost Starbucks. We lost a soup and salad place and we only have a, a bank branch. And so, um, as a result, you know, you walk into our lobby in the middle of the day and it's pretty darn quiet. Whereas buildings that have a ton of activated retail, you not only have something that's serving the tenants that are in the building, but you get people from the outside. And that activation is what makes buildings come alive, in my opinion. When you go into a building that's busy and bustling, you just feel like, gosh, this is awesome. It's great to be here. Whereas when you go into a building that's just dead quiet, you can hear a pin drop. It's just not super inspiring. It feels kind of like you're going to a building where nobody's going to in the first place. For my part, I think it's a big, bold, billion dollar bet. This uh, 
you know, especially in Manhattan where most people are on that train. I mean, very few people are driving into work. So this is the way people get to the office there. And I don't know if any of you are trout fly fishing folks, but this is a little bit like walking upstream and dropping your fly in the water upstream of me. Think about what a gut punch this is going to be for everyone else. Um, class B product, even some class A product that's going to require getting off the train, getting on another mode of transportation for the final mile to your actual office building. Who wants to do that? So the, the only solution is a further reduction in those other rents, an economic solution. So it'll be fascinating to watch this play out. I expect it'll be beautiful space. I expect it'll be highly activated and everyone else is going to have to compete. Yeah. Do we know that this will be successful and generate great returns for the investors in the project? Absolutely not. Do we know that it will make it way more challenging for everyone in the neighborhood and nearby and further away from that metro access or you know the train access point to lease up their buildings? 100% yes. I mean, this is terrible news if you're an owner, uh, you know, five, six, seven blocks away, or even just a short subway stop away. Uh, it's going to create a lot of pressure on those landlords. And and John, if you check out the pictures, I mean, it is a beautiful building. I mean, it's an inspiring, really cool place. The other thing I wanted to note is that this is very similar to the conversation we had uh, on our last podcast about uh, real estate in urban fringe areas doing better because it's closer to where people live. So it just it's thematically very similar figure out how to reduce the commute time of your team and they're more willing to come into the office. Let's move on to the next topic. Brian, I know that you wanted to talk about another real estate asset in New York, a little bit different. Um, so why don't we jump to that? And then if we have time, we can cover uh, the new story John wanted to talk about before we wrap up too. Yeah, I think it's just interesting um, that SL Green, the largest landlord in New York City, just sold a 50% stake of <clears throat> 245 Park, which Park Avenue is an iconic address, um, to the Mori Trust. So a, a large uh, real estate development trust out of Japan. And um, you know they're talking sub 3% cap rate on the deal, right? So what's, what I find interesting is this buyer is just, they're going for it. And it, and I was on the phone. To digress, I was on the phone early before this call, and a very, um, a very very successful long term buyer said, "Yeah, this is an environment where you need lots of capital and lots of patience." And I think that's who just bought this. It's the same buyer that just bought uh, a fifty percent. Well, actually, we don't know the percentage, but assumed to be around fifty percent stake in Eli Lilly's new genome research facility in Boston. That was the former. GE um, headquarters announced in the Seaport District of Boston, and then GE ends up changing their plans. It goes to Alexandria. Uh, Alexandria sells uh, a portion of that building to the same group, Mori. Um, <clears throat> so they are, uh, you know, they're making massive bets in in the U.S. right now, which I think is great, and we'll see how it plays out. But if you have patient long-term capital and you're buying high-quality assets. Uh, I don't in in high quality cities. I'm not sure you can uh, you can fail. Hey, correction. I think Brian. The article I read said high threes for a cap rate, not sub three. So I wonder. Um, either way, it's very very low in this environment. Um, but I was trying to make sense of the math and using a 3.75 cap rate, and 
I can't make sense of the math. I mean, they're, they're, um, because they also, they, they, for a one point, well, we don't know. They said it valued the property at $2 billion. So they spent a billion dollars to acquire half of it. Right. But they also bought a half, um, half a billion dollars in debt. And, you know, that, that, a 3.75 cap rate on a $2 billion valuation implies like a $44 annual net rent. That just doesn't cover that debt service. I don't get it. Maybe they bought the half a billion dollar debt at some kind of discount. There's something more in that. Yeah, John, the, there was assumable debt on the building at a 4.2% interest rate. So that helps a lot. I mean, that's probably uh, 150 basis points lower than what they would otherwise be able to get. Uh, so that that definitely helps. But at the end of the day, you think about an asset like this and somebody buying this when you can get, uh, you know, five and a quarter percent investing in risk free treasuries. It, you definitely scratch your head. I mean, are they going to be able to dramatically increase rates? Are they going to be able to even maintain their current level of net operating income? All big question marks. Uh, I think that this is a case of somebody wanting to own a meaningful stake in a trophy asset in New York City uh, and probably more focused on that or maybe portfolio allocation than how do we optimize and make really smart real estate buys because there are obviously much smarter real estate buys than this. And I think that the analysts that cover SL Green are sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, how did they pull off this sale? I mean, this is wild that they were able to get that kind of price on this type of building. Yeah, that's and you see their stock go up uh, materially in in uh, in response to this deal, I just think it's it's patient money, right? They're trying to get into New York, they're trying to get into Boston, um, and and it's interesting. What I the other part of the story that I find interesting is <clears throat> so SL Green uses it needed to raise cash. They had um, obviously a very a lot of exposure to office in New York City, which is not doing well. In the Boston story, um, so ARE. Who just they just announced? I think it was yesterday. So they have a uh, a life science building in what we call the Longwood Medical Area um, down by Fenway Park, and they it's a six hundred and sixty thousand square foot building. They just condoed out two hundred and roughly fifty thousand feet of the building, and it hasn't been delivered yet. It's just it's just in um, in uh, pre construction, I believe, to uh, Boston Children's Hospital. So they're got, Children's is going to own roughly a third, you know, almost half of, of the building. They're, they bought it at, at about $580 a square foot, but they're going to help fund, uh, can help fund the construction of the building. So there's some sort of a construct sharing and construction cost agreements as well as that. But what, what I'm seeing in, 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 in thinking is that the smart developers are finding ways to use their own money in, either going JV, selling certain assets to fund the, their more core. So they're retreating. Not only are tenants retreating to better buildings, owners are retreating to their core assets and trying to find ways to either finish those developments without borrowing money at, uh, in the marketplace or recapitalizing the buildings other or other buildings to help fund off their balance sheet, right? So it's, um, it's pretty interesting how the market is shifting and there's certain owners being very opportunistic or or uh, changing their strategies very quickly to capitalize or to to uh, mitigate the costs that are uh, that are in the market today. And you think about pulling out a quarter million square feet from an airy development as a condo, 
that just would not have happened a year or two ago, right? ARE would say, nope, that return and that capital to invest at a really high return to our investors is for us, not for a tenant, and that's completely off limits. So, I mean, that's just one example how this changing climate is creating opportunities for tenants that otherwise would not exist. But uh, in order to uh, get that benefit, you have to know that the market's shifting and you have to know what to be able to ask for and how to pursue that type of deal structure with an ARE or other really sophisticated party. Back to the SL Green story and the price that um, that 50% traded for, I think you're going to continue to see uh, trades that you know leave people scratching their head going, gosh, that's a lot of money for that office building. And isn't office you know something that's troubled right now? And I think what you're going to start to see is that the difference in the spread between the haves and the have-nots. When I mean haves, I mean trophy assets, tons of amenities, great access to transit, you know, all the things we've been discussing for the past 13 episodes um, versus the have-nots, which are Class B, 80s, 90s vintage buildings that haven't been remodeled, yada, you know, et cetera. Um, the spread's going to become pretty big. I mean, it could be massive. Um, because for those people that need office space, they're not going to lease space that leaves them in question as to whether or not they're going to get people back. They're going to lease space that is going to, you know, have people running back, so to speak. And maybe I'm being a little bit presumptuous there, but it's going to be space that they're going to, their employees are going to be like, wow, this is incredible. Whether I'm coming in five days, three days, four days, whatever it might be, when I'm here, I am loving it. And so I think there's going to be capital always looking for those opportunities where they see, um, you know, good returns in, into perpetuity because that real estate is irreplaceable in some respects, especially if it's geographically located where you want to be. And, but to earlier comments on this pod, for those buildings that are six or seven blocks away, um, yeah, the world's going to look a lot different. Yeah, it's funny. As you were saying, I know and I agree with you 100%, but as you were going through that, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, have we talked about, you know, the, <clears throat> the concept of, who, what landlord you pick as your partner and tenants partner with landlords once they sign leases. It's the, 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 the delta between the really good landlords and the average landlords have really shrunk because rents are rising, values are going up, people are investing in buildings because they're getting a return on it. As you start to see the market shift, we're going to see, I think, a, a, a big bifurcation between the really good landlords and the really good buildings are going to provide a level of service that is far in a way better than a building that's teetering on profitability, maybe getting turned over to the bank, maybe might might be okay, might not, or the ones that are just gone. But there's going to be a massive spread. So as tenants go through a process, the quality and the track record and just the ownership structure of a building, is it someone who's looking to trade out of it uh, upon completion of a lease or at certain lease up? Or are they a long-term owner that's going to be your, truly is going to be your partner? is going to be really more, much more uh, important as we go forward, I think. Okay, we've gone a little long, so I'll make mine a really quick hit. Um, consider it a primer on short sales. Um, maybe I find this interesting because I actually bought a home uh, via short sale in 1997. Um, and it comes from an obscure article from wealthmanagement.com. It just happened to come across my Google feed. Uh, they talked to this guy at 10X. 10X is a capital markets transaction platform. He says, the goal is not to take... It's how lenders are dealing with... Um, 
you know, bad loans today. The goal is not to take something in, foreclose and sell it. The goal is still to work things out and deal with cooperative borrowers and try and get them back to performing status. He goes on to say, we're seeing more of what I would call a lender involved short sale. There's a recognition that the borrower has lost equity and the lender is also going to take a loss, but there's a willingness for both sides to come together to expedite, expedite a resolution. So I find that interesting. I do think that's going to be the theme for a while. Um, I just thought it would be interesting for the listeners to understand. Maybe everybody already gets what a short sale is. Um, it's not like a short selling a stock where you're selling something you don't own yet and you're later going to have to go acquire that stock and to fulfill your obligation. You short sell a stock, your downside is limitless. You could lose more than 100% of your investment. A short sale on real estate is merely a lender agreeing for the current owner to sell it for less than the loan amount. So they're agreeing in advance to take a loss because the alternative would be to foreclose, own it, operate it, resell it, pay the transaction fees. And you know maybe you have a $70 million loan on a property and you allow that seller to sell it for 50 because for you to take it back and do all that, you're going to end up netting 40. So it's a short sale. It's the lender selling a building they don't own. Um, just thought that'd be interesting for folks to understand. I think we're going to see a lot of that, at least in the next phase of this cycle. Okay. That concludes episode 14. Four very interesting and dynamic stories discussed. Uh, hopefully you all enjoyed. We will be back soon with episode 15 and some more interesting news stories and shorter episodes for the summer. Thanks, everyone. Bye.